What a lovely day! <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Podcast, the daily podcast where we break down Mad Max one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 76, which begins with Max eavesdropping at the door and it ends with Max walking into the shadows in the MFP garage. So what a way to start a week. Yes, I like it because we get a lot of movement. Mm. Yep, we spend a little bit of time in the hospital. We're separate locations in this one minute. Yep, we spend a little bit of time in the hospital. We go to the... The beach, we end up in the garage. A lot seems to happen here. Yes. But it starts off with the two doctors continuing the conversation that they began last Friday. So, as I mentioned then, the senior doctor asks the junior doctor if Jessie is salvageable. Which I initially interpreted as, is she savable? But you picked up that maybe salvageable doesn't so much mean, is she going to survive? It's, are they going to be able to use her organs for a donor system? Yeah. So it kind of sounds to me like they've already signed off on her not surviving. That just makes sense. I mean, we've... We've investigated a little bit what her injuries are and what they mean for her prognosis. Each individual one is Mm life-threatening. And she's got, like, them all. I'm wondering, like, what's left to salvage? Right. her bladder. I know that they can do eyes. Stomach? They didn't mention anything about her stomach. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what organs are on the the you-can-use-these-in-other-people list. Right. Yeah, neither do I. Yeah. So I'm, I let's skip <laughs> going down the checklist of what they can pull from Jesse in favor of looking at what they say. Because as we mentioned last week, it's incredibly difficult to hear what the doctors are saying. Yes. Just because of how loud the music is. And I think it's kind of appropriate that we don't necessarily hear them right out. Um, because Max wouldn't necessarily hear them right out. And he's still our POV character. Yeah, he's in a daze. Yeah. But thanks to the subtitles, Senior Doctor asks, is she salvageable? Junior Doctor says, yeah, sure, we got all our signs back last night. Senior Doctor asks about relatives. Junior Doctor says the husband. Nurse comes over and mentions that, oh, they lost the kid, DOA. So Sprague did not survive Mm -hmm. the ride to the hospital. Junior Doctor, in response to the nurse, says, listen, tell him she's going to be all right. Tell him not to worry. Tell him if he wants, I'll talk to him. Nurse says, I don't think he wants to talk to anyone. He's been standing there like a zombie all day. I don't like this doctor. I got the feeling that he's purposefully telling the nurse to lie to Max. He's not trying to put an optimistic spin on the situation. He is flat out lying and he knows it. That's the feeling that I got from it. And that is not cool. It. I don't know the law in situations like this. And I, and I don't think doctors are held responsible for the prognosis that they tell patients' relatives. Mm-hmm. But this, is, this isn't overstating or understating a prognosis. This is lying. Is giving someone false hope. Yes, on purpose. And I, I, I just, I feel like that should be wrong. And he's not even doing it himself. He's sending the nurse in. Mm. You know, I haven't had a lot of hospital experiences, but 
if TV has taught me anything, when the news is this bad, the doctor comes out themselves Mm -hmm. and tells you. I know one one example for me where I was going to get a phone call and it was going to be bad news. I was kind of expecting it. It wasn't a big surprise. The doctor called me herself. Right. If it had been any other news, a nurse would have called me. But the doctor called me herself. And that was greatly appreciated. So at the very least, if this doctor is going to lie to Max, then he should do it himself, not make the nurse do it. Mm -hmm. I just don't like the whole thing. Yeah. What I don't particularly like about this is how vague Jesse's ultimate fate is left. Like I said, last week we discussed the myriad things that happened to her and how likely it is that she will not survive. But it's never expressly stated if she dies or if she survives. Just the same as Goose. Yes. We got a passing allusion to Goose passing, but we never got a right out confirmation obituary in the newspaper Goose is dead. Yeah. You know, and it's the same thing with Jesse. We're never told flat out Jesse is dead. Max never goes to a funeral, never gets a phone call or anything specific like that. It's just kind of assumed that she dies. Which is an interesting contrast to, I was thinking about other people who've died in this movie. Knight Rider, we saw his casket. Mm-hmm. We got physical confirmation of his death. So I'm I'm not sure what that says about the good guys versus the bad guys. I find it interesting. Knight Rider, very obvious that he dies. Toe Cutter, it's going to be very obvious when he dies. Mm-hmm. A lot of the other characters, including Kundalini, Johnny the Boy, the other lieutenants, a lot of these other side characters, when they die, it's not expressly outlined exactly when that happens. It's kind of reserved for the main antagonists that we know exactly when they die. Yeah. Because Knight Rider explodes. There's no coming back from that. Right. And Toe Cutter gets flattened. Spoiler alert. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's it's not going to happen for a while. But it, when it happens, you know it. I'm, Everybody else, it's just implied that they died. Yeah. I'm trying to find meaning in that. In why some characters get explicit deaths while others get vague deaths. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not finding any. It's probably relating back to the fact that Max is our POV character. And Max is directly involved with Knight Rider and Toe Cutter's death. Oh, These oh, I other like that. deaths happen around him. Yes, and he's that's not involved. That's why it's only implied. Yeah, with Goose, he just sees him in the hospital and Max that's doesn't it. stick around for him to shuffle off. Nope. Same thing with Jesse. Max leaves people in the hospital and he never goes back for them. Oh, okay. He just kind of writes them off, it seems. And speaking of writing, there is a trope that exists in movies, literature, comic books, the idea of being stuffed in the fridge. And it comes specifically from an old Green Lantern comic book, but it's a trope that writers will use where they take a loved one that's related to the main character somehow... And they will have something tragic, like a death, happen to that character in order to drive their main character. TVTropes.org has a nice little blurb. Let me run through that real quick, just so we can get some solid background here, because I can jump off from that. So, TVTropes.org says, A character is killed off in a particularly gruesome manner and left to be found just to offend or insult someone or to cause someone serious anguish. The usual victims are those who matter to the hero, specifically best buddies, love interests, and sidekicks. 
In some cases, the doomed character may be killed by natural forces or by a character who doesn't have the intent to cause someone else angst. In this case, the intent comes from the writer, who wants to rouse strong emotions in another character. If the said character was killed by a villain, this guarantees to become a motivation for a revenge plot or an immediate roaring rampage of revenge. So in this story, Max has three different people that are proverbially stuffed in the fridge. Goose, Sprague, and Jesse. Killed off by antagonists in order to drive his story forward. And it's not until he loses Sprague and Jesse does he fly off into, as they call it, the roaring rampage of revenge. Which is when he switches from normal Max over to Mad Max. Like, yes. this is the turning point. Yes. This minute here. When he changes from the lawman to the vigilante. Yes. I think Goose's death triggered, like, the slow burn, and then Sprague and Jesse triggered the rampage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's important to say that tropes in and of themselves are not bad. Tropes, when they are no. abused, are when they go bad. When a lazy writer says, oh, well, let's just kill off the girlfriend, and then that will I'll motivate the hero to, to fight. do something. In this case, this trope is the entire point of the movie. Right. The entire point of the movie is we take a normal person who is trying to do good in the world and they are subjected to something horrible. That is the story that we are being told. Mm -hmm. And you can turn up your nose at the idea of fridging a character as tired and worn out. But at the same time, how people deal with that is incredibly interesting. Yes. You know. You get to see which turn they take once they reach this crossroad. And, you know, think of that scene in Beauty and the Beast where Belle's father sees the nice sunny path with the birds singing. And he sees the dark path with all the crooked trees. Max goes down that crooked path with the dark trees. Mm -hmm. You know, he becomes overwhelmed by this desire to get revenge. Yes. And George Miller certainly did not use this trope cheaply. Mm-hmm. He built an entire movie around this one idea. Yeah. And as we have said many, many times before, we really, truly got to know these relationships and these characters. Right. So it's less of a trope and more of a theme, the way George Miller used it. Yeah, yeah. So, And I like when it outlines the idea of the motivation behind fridging these characters uh, meant as an insult or to cause someone anguish. I think Goose was definitely an insult to the MFP, his murder, an insult to the bronze. Yes. And Jesse's death was meant to cause anguish. Yes. I think. Um, something has been on my mind, and I actually keep forgetting to bring it up because we've our discussion hasn't taken us there, but I'm going to jump in with it. When Toe Cutter went after Jesse at the farm and then on the road, did he know who Max was? At did he know that he was also hurting Max who he had a vendetta against, connected to the Knight Rider. At no point does Max go up against the Toe Cutter until later in this movie. Yeah, so I think, so I think no. He so, had no idea that he was both hurting the MFP and hurting this woman who insulted him. Well, I don't think the Toe Cutter was looking to damage Max. He was looking to damage the organization. Like, Goose represented the bronze. Yes. And in killing Goose, they meant to insult the bronze. Although, I agree, but I think if he had known that Max was the individual officer that was directly involved with Knight Rider's death, he would have had a personal vendetta against him. But 
he it, it, he never finds that information out. No, and I mean, it's purely he will, by chance that he, he gets some sort of revenge upon Max, and that's purely by chance. It has nothing to do with his connection to the Night Rider. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So going back to this minute, going back into this doctor's room, the nurse, as we said before mentions that Max has been standing out in the hallway like a zombie all day. And as we kind of pull back, we see Max standing next to the door frame, and he's been listening this entire he's time. well within the earshot. Yeah. So he's heard the extent of her injury. He's heard the doctors talking about salvaging Jesse. He's heard the young doctor tell the nurse to just placate him mm-hmm. and give him false hope. It's got to be infuriating. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I just can't help but think how unfair it is to Max for the doctor to lie to him. Give Max the opportunity to stay by her side until she goes. And she's not conscious, so she will not know that he's there. Mm-hmm. It's probably a matter of minutes. I just can't imagine her lasting longer than that. And this doctor's robbing Max of a chance to say goodbye. But then again, Max doesn't seem the type who would take that opportunity. Yeah, I don't think the doctor is telling Max to leave. I think Max is leaving because he can't deal with it. Yes. He can't stomach hanging around and waiting for her to die. He didn't do it with Goose and I nope. don't and he's not going to do it with Jesse. Despite what these people mean to him, he can't bring himself to watch them slip away yes. entirely. Instead, he retreats. And it's at this point that we cut to a different scene. Uh before we leave the hospital though, we have three characters that we haven't talked about yet. I'm going to go through them rather quickly because there wasn't a ton that I found interesting about their IMDb entries. Uh, So the junior doctor is played by an actor named Phil Motherwell. He lived from 1946 to 2014. Uh, Mad Max was the number one on his IMDb top four. The interesting thing about Phil Motherwell is that of his 19 actor credits on IMDb, 16 of them are films. He's not your typical majority tv actor like a lot of the other roles that we see in this movie um it just stood out to me as interesting that he was strictly a film actor so the senior doctor was played by peter felmingham his imdb top four includes mad max the coast town kids in 1980s one more minute in 1979 the gift in 1988 he was in 10 episodes of Division 4, 10 episodes of Homicide, 4 episodes of Matlock Police, and he was in one episode of Prisoner Cell Block H, one that we haven't gotten to yet. He was in episode 10, which is like the next one that we're planning on watching at yeah. this point. I wish that we had had time to get to that episode, but yeah. we really just didn't. Yeah, it's it's incredibly rough to find time to do all of the things that we want to do in a normal day. Yeah. Um, but he plays Father Peterson in episode 10, so we'll have to keep an eye out for him. Yes, and I've got some ideas on how a priest shows up Yeah, in the storyline. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. We don't want to launch into Prisoner Cell Block H again. <laughs> Certainly not. So Peter Felmingham is definitely more of a traditional television actor appearing in a movie, much like other people we see here. 17 of his 23 actor credits are in television. Okay. Either TV shows, TV movies. It sounds like these people have a lot of the same connections. Mm -hmm, Definitely. A lot of overlap in episodes of TV shows and also lots of overlap in movies. Yeah. I feel, I kind of feel like Melbourne is a center of cinema for Australia. Okay. 
kind of a Hollywood of Australia type of thing. I wonder how it compares to other large cities Mm. in Australia as far as production Mm. volume. Um, Interestingly enough, Peter Felmingham was also the casting director for the 1988 film As Time Goes By. The IMDb summary for that reads, A surfer who stops in for a bite to eat at a 1940s-style diner eventually realizes that it's not a diner at all. It is a spaceship disguised as one, and the owners of the diner are aliens. So that sounds like an interesting concept. And Senior Doctor from Mad Max did the casting directing for that film. Good on him. Finally, the nurse is played by an actress named Lisa Aldenhoven. Uh, Her IMDb Top 4 starts with Mad Max, goes on to list Brilliant Lies, Death of a Soldier, and Blue Fire Lady. Uh, She did three episodes of Prisoner Cell Block H. She played an inmate named Sally Lee in the pilot episode, number one. Oh, so we already missed that one. And she comes back four years later in 1983 to play a character named Cheryl Armstrong in episodes 387 and 388. So we got quite a while before we We see her again. The tough thing is, we do not get a good look at her face. Not really. In Mad Max. Not really. It's quite dark. She never, like, faces the camera. So I think we'd be hard-pressed to pick her out. Yeah. Uh, She's another actress where, like, two-thirds of her acting credits are all television. Okay. So, another TV actor. So, getting back to the minute. Yes. Which is a phrase I feel like I use a lot. (laughs) We join Max on his thinking bench. Yes. On the beach, and... I kind of feel like in this scene in particular, the ocean seems a bit more stormy than it did oh, yes. when Goose recently died. Yes, and we get a good we get a good shot looking at Max. The camera's kind of down low. We can see the sky above him. Mm-hmm. We can see the awning type thing covering the bench, and it is violently flapping in the wind. And you can see the dark clouds behind him. Yeah. So the weather is... Is absolutely reflecting his emotional state. Yeah. And I think you mentioned this the other day, that this time around, he doesn't have Jesse to come out of the house and, you know, and, keep an eye on him. Right. And He's completely alone at this and point. And be there for him. He doesn't have anybody. Mm-hmm. And Jesse, she did such a phenomenal job being there for him. Right. And communicating that to him. Supporting him without having to say a single thing. Yeah. That whole scene, she didn't say a word. And it was so, it was very skillful on her part. And it, and you got the sense that it was intuition on her part. Mm-hmm. That she was just behaving how she knew Max, her husband, needed her to behave. Yeah. She was perfectly there for him. And now nobody is mm-hmm. there for him. There's no one there to hear him out. There's no one for him to vent how he feels too. Yeah. And all of that is stuck inside him. And this time it's twice as bad as when he lost Goose. Because the first time he lost a best friend, this time he lost a wife and a son. Yes. And I'm pretty much just going to say right out that Jesse is dead. Yes. I I think that is a very safe assumption. Yeah. Like I said, we've said several times with the severity of her wounds. Yeah. I think we we can call it. Yeah. I like the mask that he is holding Yeah, so, for several reasons. So we start looking at Ma- Max's face and he's looking down at his hands and then we see a shot and he's holding the grumpy mask yes. from earlier in this movie. Yes, which when we saw it earlier, it was very clearly like an inside joke. 
mm-hmm. thing that they did for each other to cheer each other up, to make each other laugh. Yeah, something goofy to break the tension. Yes, and it meant something to them. Mm-hmm. And now, as he's grieving her, this is the object that he has chosen to represent what he has lost. Yeah, I like the choice to have him holding the grumpy mask because... He is, granted, grumpy is a terrible adjective to use. Right. Grumpy isn't the word. But he's but upset. Yes. And he's anguished. This visual that we have of this ugly face, and it's very malleable, squishy. So he's he's mangling it all up in he's his like hands. He's pulling at it and stretching it. And that's what he feels like on the inside. Yeah. And he's it's like he's trying to rip it apart. Yeah. Because that's what he wants to do. That's He, he feels like he's going to rip apart on the inside. Yeah. And it's especially poignant because you know that if he was in this type of mood, Jesse would grab that mask and probably put it on her face and act, act a little goofy. And he doesn't have anyone to do that for him. Right. And so he's just stuck inside this proverbial glass box of emotion. Yes. And it's escalating. It's getting worse. Mm-hmm. And you can see it on his face. We keep cutting back and forth between the mask and... And Max sitting there staring down at his hands. Yeah, and it's getting stormier. Mm -hmm. The wind is getting higher. You can see that awning flapping in the wind. And you can see his face is like, it's moist. You can tell that he's been like... Crying and probably also sweating. Yeah. And I really love how the crescendo is communicated. Yeah, because it just builds and it builds until and he his just kind of... his face is very expressive without being overly expressive. Yeah, and like I said, it builds until he just shoots up from the chair. Right, he just can't... And sprints back to the house. He can't hold it in anymore. He has to do something. Yeah. It's interesting that so quickly he returns to this running. Mm-hmm. He spent an entire day running... Yeah. And it did no good in the end. It was always in the wrong direction, and he ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it did him no good. So once again, so soon, he's running again. Yeah. And this time, it's towards something that he feels more secure that will, towards something that he, that will help him. Yeah. Um. Can I mention really quick, side note, as he's running up the hill to his mm. house. Mm-hmm. So he's wearing his sleeveless tank top. He's wearing his blue striped pajama pants. He's also apparently wearing one red boot. Yes. Like he's not even wearing two shoes. Like one foot is bare. One foot has, it's like a A red. red, Like galosh. Rubber boot. Yeah. I'm actually a little surprised that he's not still wearing the tan pants. That he has changed his clothes. Well, this is probably the next day. He's probably tried to sleep on it. Yeah. And was unable to. And yeah, I'm surprised that he changed into pajamas. Mm-hmm. I can easily see, like, try put, putting yourself in his position. He's had a very long, very exhausting day that ended with the death of his wife and son, especially while they were out on vacation. Mm-hmm. And he returns home alone and it's empty. Yeah. Like, this is the one place where Jesse and Sprague spent most of their time. Right. Everything in that apartment. Is centered around them. Yeah. And I'm kind of surprised he changed his clothes. I say, he probably had to take he, a shower at some point. Well, I doubt he showered. I actually wonder if his pants were covered in blood. Yeah. That we didn't see. There was absolutely no gore at all. Yeah. The 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 doctor in the scrubs had some blood splats on his on his scrubs, and that was it. But I I suspect that he was... Covered in blood. Yeah, but anyway, Max 
goes into the apartment and he crosses the room and he opens up this trunk that's sitting against the wall and he pulls this covering off of the stuff inside and it reveals all of his MFP gear. Mm -hmm. Which I got to point out is put away very carefully. Mm -hmm. And I think that's definitely part of Max's personality. Yes, he left the force under less than ha happy circumstances, but he still had respect for the force. Mm -hmm. And he still respected the uniform that represented the force. I appreciate the fact... he put it fact, away with care. I appreciate the fact that he put away his stuff. Like, he was so determined to walk away that he completely stored his gear. Right, it wasn't just hanging up in the closet. He didn't put the boots back in the closet with his other shoes. Mm. He didn't hang his jacket with his other jackets. He put his things away. Yeah. But now that he needs it again, like this returning to the gear is, like I said, that turning point that we've got to. As soon as he puts this uniform on again... He is no longer Max. He, he is, is now Mad, Mad Max. Max. And we don't necessarily see him gear up. We just kind of cut from the box of gear to him walking in the MFP garage. Yeah. And before we talk about this shot in the garage, there is another deleted scene that is supposed to have been cut from the movie. So let me just dip into that real quick. So there's this little blurb from MadMaxMovies.com from their cutscenes page. Uh, they say, uh, it seems almost certain now that this scene exists in some versions of the film released on video and cable. A contributor recalled that in this scene, Max actually sawed off a pump-action shotgun, which obviously creates a continuity error with the double-barrel sawn-off that appears later. Perhaps this is why the scene was ultimately cut. So the idea is that instead of having all of the firearms ordinance packed away with the gear he actually goes back to mfp headquarters goes into the armory locker and takes weapons from there um, there's a probably about four different cuts that would make up this scene it starts off uh, interior a long corridor in the police armory it's kind of a tracking shot it's described a low angle tracking ahead of max's boots as he walks briskly along the corridor in parentheses it says exaggerate reverberating footfall his steps seem to be locked into a fierce, almost martial rhythm. Camera cranes up the full length of his uniform to hold on Max's face. He is clean-shaven. His hair is cropped short. He overtakes the camera. Cut to tight angle on metal cabinet. As the door flips open to reveal several service weapons, Max selects a magnum handgun. Tight angle on the shelf. Max's glove hand removes a number of ammunition boxes, bullets, and shotgun cartridges. Tight on Max's hand. As he selects a pump-action short-barreled shotgun from its slot. Hold on the low row of such weapons as we hear Max move out of the room and slam the big metal door shut. Okay. So, yeah. It we sounds like a nice scene yeah. and very and powerful, especially the way they described like the exaggerated reverberation of the footfalls. Mm -hmm. But ultimately not needed. Exactly. It's it would have been extra filming that they wouldn't need to do. Yes. Because just going from him opening the box with all of his stuff in it to seeing him fully decked out in his gear I think it's more with all of his weapons. Yeah, it's more Going immediate. straight to the garage. Yeah, it's all about him not so much being meticulous. It's him making a rash decision that he's going to take the law into his own hands. Yes. It's more immediate this way. Yes. And cutting back just a little bit to the fact that we don't see him actually gearing up, mm -hmm. the process of watching him gearing up 
would have equated to the process of him transforming into Mad Max. The momentary, this is actually happening right now. He is becoming Mad Max. We already saw that process. Mm -hmm. That happened when he was sitting on the bench playing with the mask. Yeah. He was making that transition then. It was an emotional transition, not a physical one. Yes. So, plus, when Max is himself, he's meticulous. He's careful. Here, everything happens so quick, Mm -hmm. it abandons that. Yes. Here... It's about revenge, and he is not going to waste any time, you know, going back to the Knight Rider chase. He's not going to waste time washing his hands Mm -hmm. and making sure everything is in its place, adjusting his mirrors. No, he is pulling out his uniform. Now he is in the uniform, and he is going to walk into the shadows in the garage. Yes. I also love this shot because this shot mirrors the shot of him running down the road to Jesse. Mm -hmm. The camera's staying still. He is walking straight forward into the darkness. And I I just love the comparison between him running down the road to Jesse and him walking down into the darkness. It's also a pretty big contrast because as he's running towards Jesse, he's wearing a white tank top and light tan pants. Yes. In a bright blue and and earthy. Outdoors. Yeah, where here, he's inside, he's dressed all in black. Lighting is very sparse. Yeah, we know that he's going to get the black on black. Yes. This is him going to retrieve that special interceptor that was made for him. And I find it interesting that as he goes dark, his car goes dark as well. He doesn't leave in his regular yellow interceptor. Mm -hmm. No, he goes out in the black on black. And that's how we start tomorrow's minute yes that so often it happens that the minute cutoff is not at a great point Mm -hmm. like halfway through a word or a sentence this time it actually lands quite nice yeah the minute that we're watching ends pretty much as he fades into the shadows into the shadows and then then the minute for tomorrow we're starting with the the black on black thundering out of the garage yes which is a very nice transition yeah absolutely so be sure to come back for that tomorrow In the meantime, our website is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute, like us on Facebook, and join our listeners page, Mad Max Minute, Beyond Microphone. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute number 76. We'll see you tomorrow. Motorbikes and men, take me to the moon.